thank Harry and Pastor Rob for uh, inviting me to be here. It's good to be with, with you this morning. Uh, George, Veteran of the Year, thank you for your service, sir. In, in my best dreams at night, I'm a United States Marine. <laughs> Simplify, my friend. Thank you. The 23rd of April 2013 was a sad day for the nation. It was on that day in a place called Forward Operating Base Shank in eastern Afghanistan that the Taliban struck an early morning attack. The second of five rounds was a direct hit. Killed in that attack was an Army helicopter pilot, Army Captain Aaron Blanchard from the Pacific Northwest. Also killed instantly was another helicopter pilot who comes from the town I live in now, First Lieutenant Robert Hess, the son of a Black Hawk helicopter pilot as well. Both of these men killed instantly. A third was very seriously wounded. They did not think he was going to make it. And that was my youngest son, who is now an Army Major Intelligence Officer. These men were from Fort, Fort Drum, New York, part of the 10th Mountain Division. They had volunteered to go early to Afghanistan to set up all of the uh, camp there for about a thousand of their colleagues that would shortly follow them. Isn't it amazing that we have men and women like that in our nation who are willing to lay down their life so that others might live? I find that truly amazing. I'd like to share you, with you this morning on this Veterans Weekend that you're celebrating here at OBC. Uh, a little bit of what I've seen from my perch for 25 years serving in the military. The first ones occurred on September 11, 2001, when I was the deputy for naval aviation in the Pentagon. We were responsible for anything and everything that had to do with anything that flies within the Navy. Bombs, bullets, airplanes, helicopters, aircraft carriers, anything that had to do with that came through our office. We were the clearinghouse between the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, and across the Potomac at Capitol Hill, the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee, they were the ones that appropriated our money, and we gave them to put together all of the requests of what we needed to, op to outfit the, uh, the fleet, the Navy and Marine Corps aviation program. So I was the deputy there sir, working for NAVRL. I, I remember I got to my office that morning, as I normally did, at 5.30, and for some of you, there is a 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, but I would get the early to the Pentagon because I always wanted to have some personal time in Bible study and prayer. And I remember specifically on that day in 2001, I was going through a devotional by Pastor John MacArthur called Strength for Today. And little did I know, any of us know, how much strength we would all need to get through that day and the days and weeks that followed September 11th. I finished my Bible study and put the all of my materials away, and I grabbed that stack of paper that was due on Capitol Hill by the end of the week. And I remember I was busy. I had no idea what time it was. Somebody told me it was about 8.30. A young lady came by me and said, hey, Captain Joyce, you need to come with me. An airplane just hit the World Trade Center up in New York City. And frankly, I was so involved in my work, and, and I just didn't give a second thought. I grew up there. I grew up on Long Island, right outside of New York City. My dad was a New York City cop for almost 40 years, so I was very familiar with the city. I'd been in the World Trade Center. I knew where the airports were around New York City, and in my mind, when she said that an airplane just hit the World Trade Center, I just pictured it was a small airplane had taken off and maybe lost its way in the morning fog, and she came back when I hadn't followed her, and she said, that was an airliner. 
And so that got my attention, and I got up and went with her into the office that was next to mine, where we had a television on all the time, either on CNN or Fox News, because that's how we got our current intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) And we watched the aftermath, uh, seriously, of that first airplane hitting the first tower. Uh, In fact, the pilot of that airplane, who was not in command, or the co-pilot, was a good friend. Uh, Tom McGinnis, we called him Stout. He had been an F-14 pilot that I actually trained, and he served his time in the military, was in the reserves, and was actually flying for the airlines when the airline was hijacked. We watched the aftermath of that airplane having hit the first tower up in New York, and then, like many of you, uh, we saw live the second airplane hit the second tower. And you just couldn't take in what you were seeing. It was just kind of, just kind of overwhelming. I remember there was a there was an officer standing right next to me. His name Chuck Caputz. Remember that name, Chuck Caputz. He's a Navy commander and intelligence officer. As soon as he saw the second airplane hit the second tower, he said, it's a coordinated attack. I know what's going on here. It's a coordinated attack. And he'd pick up the phone right there on the desk and dial down to the National Military Command Center, which is in kind of the bowels of the Pentagon. It's where they run global operations. For anybody that is involved in the U.S. military, everything's run out of the National Military Command Center, 24 hours a day. And he called a friend that was on watch down there who, who transferred the information to him t- and him to us that we think that there were multiple airplanes that had been hijacked. We indeed were under a coordinated attack. And so I dispatched Chuck. I said, you're the only one that has access to get into the Navy Operations Center, which was directly below us on the first floor. I said, I want you to go down there and monitor all the traffic you can on the classified internet and then keep calling me and keep me updated and everything that's going on. Chuck said, aye, aye, sir. And he went down to the Navy Operations Center. And I stayed with everybody else watching all of the, the spin doctors and the different channels and the replays of all of the, of, the, of the airplanes hitting the Twin Towers. And then I realized I've got all that paperwork due on Capitol Hill by the end of the week. So I went back to my desk and I'm working through things and I said, I, I can't concentrate. Everybody's talking over here, the TV's blaring. I know what just happened, I need to go for a run. I used to run just about every day at the Pentagon, which is a beautiful place to go out in the National Mall and and run. So I was gonna go for a run, it was a beautiful day in the nation's capital that day. And and I remember I was standing in front of the window uh, when the airplane hit the building. Now just to orient you a little bit, if you've ever been in that part of the world, down in Washington DC, you know Interstate 395 and uh, Route 27 is what borders the Pentagon. And uh, the Pentagon, when you see it, is five-sided building, thus the name Pentagon. It's also five stories high and multiple stories. I can't, I can tell you how many it was below the ground, but then I have to kill you. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of a wash. But just, um, just say that it's five stories high, five-sided building. And then there's five concentric rings, starting in the outer, outer ring, which is the E ring, and then the D and the C and the B. And inside the A ring, there's actually a beautiful courtyard with kind of a walking track in there and a restaurant and some nice trees. It, it's an amazing building, it really is. 25,000 people work in the building when it's, uh, when it's filled to capacity every single day. Our office was on the very top floor, the fifth floor, and we spanned the C and the D ring with a little bridge between the, right in the middle of our office that went from the C to the D ring. And uh, we were on the side of the Arlington Cemetery. So if I was standing at my desk and looking out the window, uh, I could see the E-ring, which was the conference room right across from our window, 
But it, I'll just say on the other side of that, if you could see it, it would be Arlington Cemetery. You can see all the tombstones of Arlington Cemetery. And we were, again, we were on the top floor, and the airplane hit the building. It had taken off at a Dulles Airport, which is in northern Virginia, about 20 minutes from my home where I live. It was heading to the West Coast. It had 65 people on board, uh, 757 American, American Airlines, and uh, 55 people, 65 people on board with a full tank of gas. And we think it was hijacked about 15 minutes after takeoff, and once they finally got the airplane turned around, they were heading to Washington, D.C. People have speculated what the target could have been. It could have been the White House. It could have been the, the, the Supreme Court of the Capitol. All I can tell you is where it hit. And I was standing in front of the window, just looking outside, thinking, what a beautiful morning. I need to go for a run. And that's when it hit the building. And we didn't hear anything. Uh, we had no warning whatsoever. It just hit the building. And I remember uh, there was some floor joists right below me, and, and I was kind of getting lifted up all of a sudden. As the airplane was penetrating, at 550 miles an hour, it hit the building. And wingspan to wingspan, it penetrated the E-ring, the D-ring, the C-ring, and stopped just short of the B-ring. It took everything out, the first three and a half floors, everything completely out, wingspan to wingspan of that whole body of the airplane came through. And so when it literally went under us and all of that burning jet fuel and the debris from the building and the air airplane was in this massive balloon of, of just burning fuel and, and speckled black stuff in it. Because I remember getting kind of lifted up on the floor, and I remember kind of going back, thinking, what, what has happened here? I, I, you just couldn't understand what was happening. Getting lifted up and thrown back, and then in front of me in the window, that just went just bright orange, and you see all these black specks, and everything was coming rapidly towards the window. And, and you know how sometimes you're in an emergency situation, like, how many of you have been in a car accident before? There's a lot more hands in the first service. Don't come to the first service. <laughs> There's a lot of bad drivers in the first service. <laughs> Every hand went up, like somebody had two hands, you know. Um, but you know, if something like that happens, um, everything seems to slow down, but it's really your brain is firing the synapses that much quickly, and you can, the, you can think of a lot of things at once. And so I was kind of getting picked up and thrown back and see this bright flash come in, and I'm thinking, I'm about to see Jesus. I mean, your brain slows down enough, but you can think, and you're, I'm about to see Jesus. And then the crazy things, I told the guys first hour, the crazy things that you think as well. That morning when I came in to do my devotions, I put my lunch in the refrigerator, I took out a bag of Doritos and put it on my desk. And now picture this, I'm, I'm getting thrown back, this massive balloon of burning whatever is coming at me. I said, I'm about to see Jesus. And then I kind of went, never going to get a chance to eat those Doritos. <laughs> Just the crazy stuff you think about all at once. Every window in our office came in, was broken in, except for one. That was the one I was standing in front of. And all that debris and the burning jet fuel came in. And the, the pressure coming up the, the two stairwells that bracketed either side of our office, when it hit the ceiling, it had nowhere to go and just blew the walls in in our office. And so we had about 100 people working for me. Uh, in the office, and a number had received head injuries from the cinder blocks that just kind of came through the, the office like cruise missiles. And so I grabbed another guy and said, you and I are going to be the last ones out of here. We need to account for everybody. And we got all 100 people out, had to get a bunch of them the first aid to get 
uh, to get sewn up, and, uh, and we got everybody out. I was the last one out. I closed the door, and then we made our way in towards the A-ring. The, the E-ring e uh, that was right in front of us, that, that, um, that conference room had already begun to collapse. And the, the people that were in there actually made it out before it collapsed. But if you've seen the pictures, the whole building there just caved in completely. And uh, our office was the one that was the next available that you could see there. And everything was just a massive fire. The fire burned in and on top of the building for five and a half days at over 1,500 degrees. They could not get the fire out. They fought it for that long. Um, you can imagine that thick, black, burned jet fuel smoke. Uh, the smoke layer dropped down to about uh, two and a half to three feet. And so we were kind of crouching down to, to be able to see, to make our way inward. And we went down the escalators. The power had been knocked out, so we're walking down the escalators. And you can imagine a place like the Pentagon. We didn't have a problem with somebody taking charge and orders. But, but aside from those that were saying, you know, don't go down that way, you know, go this way, and this one's closed, and help this person, aside from those that were giving good direction, uh, nobody else spoke. We were in shock. Everybody knew the world had, had just changed. And when we got to floors, going down the escalator, three, two, and one, you could hear faintly in the distance, because nobody was talking, will somebody help me? People were screaming, will somebody show me the way? Will somebody save me? And because of the fire, again, burning so hot, we could not get from where we were to them. And we understand that most, if not all of them, were rescued by the first responders who came in from the airplane penetration hole and rescued most, if not all, of those people. But it was really eerie to hear people screaming for help. The Pentagon is so big that the people that were worked diagonally opposite to where the impact point was did not know the building had been hit until they saw it on the news. And then they, um, there was an ordered evacuation of the building. All 25,000 people were out in the parking lot. Those of us in uniform, we were in a dead sprint to see if we could somehow get to the impact point to, uh, to help man a hose or, or apply first aid. But the first responders from uh, the city of Arlington, which is right around the Pentagon, were already on site. And they were helicopters that had already been taking off to take some of the, the uh, most uh, burned people to, to get some help. The police eventually came by about two hours later and told us to all leave and make your way home and watch the evening news to see if the building will be open tomorrow for work. It was a massive fire on this one side and thousands of people going into work. We were at war. And so the building was open the next morning and there was about 10,000 of us just walking down Interstate 395 in the right-hand lane and the, and the shoulder. And they had closed the district. They had closed the District of Columbia. So people were we're leaving and then picking people up on the way down, so just to get home that night. That night I had to do one of the more difficult things I've ever had to do, and I hope you never have to do this. And I got a call right about dinner time from one of the pastors at the church where I'm now a pastor. I was serving as an elder at the time, and he called me and I said, I know what you've been through today, but we've got one in the, in the church body, in the church family, uh, that's been missing, has reported missing, and, and I want you to come and and share the news with the family. And I hope you never have to do that. Uh, Jerry Dickinson, an Army Lieutenant Colonel, his desk was right up against the window on the, on the third floor there at the Pentagon, right on the E-ring, and they never found anything of him. There's a gold star that is um, right, right at the opening of our church because we lost a member of our family that day. And I came in and shared the news with his wife and his daughter and son, and I hope 
again, that you never have to do that, to look in the eye and have to tell them that their father and their husband are, is not coming home. And the only good news I could give them was that absent from the body, the scripture says, and he loved the Lord, absent from the body, he's present with the Lord. Isn't that the best news we can give anybody? But I hope you never have to bring that kind of news. You know, about a month after 9-11, we had a, just a powerful memorial service right there at the river entrance of the, the Pentagon. And thousands of people came. President Bush came. The gospel was preached there. And shortly after that, we had an awards ceremony where they gave special recognition to people that did heroic things on, on that day. And one of them I mentioned to you before was my friend Chuck Caputz. See, I nearly sent him to his death when I sent him down to the Navy Operations Center because he was the intelligence officer who had the only access down there to, to keep us updated. And he was sitting at a console in the C-ring of the Navy Operations Center when the airplane penetrated the building. He was sitting there with four Navy civilians, two on one side of him and two on the other side of him. They were all watching this, uh, the updates on the classified internet that the military has. And he was keeping us updated when the airplane penetrated. And 42 of my shipmates, 42 naval personnel, my shipmates, were killed instantly that morning in the Navy Operations Center. The Navy took the biggest hit in the Pentagon, including a name that you may recognize. He's a local, a classmate of mine from the Naval Academy, Jerry DeCano, Captain Jerry DeCano. And he was killed instantly there in the Pentagon. My friend Chuck Caputz was literally blown out of the building when the airplane, the nose of the airplane penetrated right through the Operations Center, killing everyone else. But he was blown out of the hole between the C and the B ring the little alleyway there. And even when he came to, he realized that those poor civilians that were in there with him hadn't made it out. And so he made a decision. Actually, he made four decisions because he went back in through that inferno and he found and resuscitated and rescued all four of those civilians and saved their lives. And he received the Navy Marine Corps Medal that day. It's the highest award you can give in peacetime for life-saving. He's an American hero. He really is. And at that award ceremony, the media just mobbed the recipients after the ceremony was over. And they specifically wanted to talk to my friend Chuck because he had saved four people and had been, he had been recognized for saving four people. And then when they put a microphone and a camera in front of him and one of the reporters said, why did you do it? Why did you go back into the building not once but four times? You were rescued already. You were fine. Why did you put your life at risk? Without any hesitation, he just humbly said, it's just simple. That's what I learned in my training. He said, when I came into the Navy, here's what they told me. The mission must be accomplished, so we must save the ship. Don't give up the ship. And secondly, he said, I was told to make sure you take care of your shipmate, the guy or the gal on either side of you. And then lastly, they said, if there's anything left over after you take care of the ship and the shipmate, then you can think about yourself. He said, ship, shipmate, and self, I was just doing what I trained. Isn't that amazing that somebody would be willing to lay down their life, not once, but four times for the life of others. Some would be willing to lay down their life for the likes of someone else. I've seen that one other time I want to share with you. It happened on the flight deck of the USS Kitty Hawk, an aircraft carrier. I was serving as one of the uh, commanding officers of one of the squadrons. I had one of the F-14 squadrons. On that, we had, we had just left, left San Diego en route to the Persian Gulf for an eight-month deployment. And three days outside of San Diego, 
We were redirected by the National Command Authority. We were redirected by the president to go to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, that means all the, the aircraft carrier and all of the airplanes on the carrier and the submarine and the frigates and the cruisers and the SEAL team, we all went and turned and made a, a beeline for the Korean Peninsula. The North Koreans had amassed themselves on the border between North and South Korea. We know it as the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. And they were threatening to attack our allies, the South Koreans. And so they sent us to get there as quickly as we could to show the Americans were standing by the South Koreans. And as soon as we made that turn, about 24 hours later, we ran into some horrific weather in the Pacific Ocean. And the back of the carrier was moving plus or minus 25 or 30 feet. I mean, it was really a scary, some of the worst weather I've ever been into. And, and in fact, I couldn't even look at those smaller ships because they were going, the bow was going underwater and coming up seconds later. It was really a scary time. Flight operations were, were ceased. Um, it was just too dangerous to fly that day, or for days, to, days that followed, we just couldn't fly. I mean, flying on, a, on, a, on an airliner, which I'll do this afternoon to fly back home at Logan Airport, you're landing on a two-mile runway. And even those pilots train all the time to be able to safely land an airliner on a two-mile runway. Um, an aircraft carrier is just a little bit smaller uh, than that, and you're out in the middle of the of the ocean trying to land on that during the day and during the night. And so we, we canceled flight operations. And we were in that rough seas for probably five or six days. But once the weather broke, we got back out and requalified during the day. Everybody got back in getting comfortable with landing on the carrier during the day. And then we do our most challenging thing is we got real uh, requalified to go land on the carrier at night. And I've got uh, a couple of hundred night landings uh, on a carrier. Uh, that's how I got my gray hair and the lack of hair and I'm um, getting sweaty palms right now just thinking about it. It's a scary evolution, let me tell you. Well, one night we, we sent some uh, of the senior guys to get requalified back out. They took off at about 1130 at night. We also sent one young lieutenant out there with them. He had done wonderfully during the day getting requalified and now he was going to go get requalified at night. Um, we were about 1,500 to 2,000 miles from uh, anywhere else to land. We call blue water operations around the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The water temperature was about 38 degrees or so. Um, this is in the dead of winter, and so it was really dark, and there was no horizon, no moon. And I remember that we, we launched these guys, and they were out for about 20 minutes. We started, the ship started moving again, and we got into some really bad weather again. And so getting these guys aboard to land about midnight um, in some really difficult weather was, was quite a task. All of the senior guys, the veterans, were able to come and get aboard, but that young lieutenant, he just was having a tough time that night. He went around seven times. His tail hook kept missing the wires, kept missing the wires. He was getting low fuel and low impatience. And in his mind, he knew that if eventually I ran out of gas because I couldn't get aboard, and I had to eject uh, we'll be in the water here, and we'll, we'll die of exposure before the helicopter can get to us. And so his last time, his eighth time around, he made a play for the deck. Unfortunately, the ship was rising rapidly in that 30-foot crest, and he came down low and slow and hit the back of the, what we call the ramp, the back of the ship, and uh, there was a massive explosion. And, and the F-14 that he was flying literally broke in half. The spine of the airplane broke in half. The back half of the airplane with the tail hook caught the wire, but the front half of the airplane, because it was broken, broke away. 
and now the pilot and the back seater are sliding down the, uh, on the nose gear down the, uh, the flight deck about to go off into that 38 degree water. And the backseater was senior enough to have the presence of mind. He said, we got nothing to lose. He pulled the ejection handle and everything worked perfectly. Canopy came off, both of the seats came out, both the parachutes opened up, the backseater just slowly glided down. He landed in the front of the carrier there, not a scratch on him, but it wasn't the pilot's night. See, when that parachute opened up, and the wind over the flight deck carried him, and he landed right in the middle of the fire from the re remainder part of the airplane. And then I saw something with my eyes that you just couldn't believe was happening, but this is when you say, this is why I'm proud to be an American. There were five young enlisted men, average age of about 18 and a half, 19 years old. Uh, they all have different jobs to do. They were, they were stationed on what's called the foul line. It's a, it's a small safety area on either side of the landing zone on the carrier. It's a very dangerous place to stand. Um, that, that landing area is very narrow that you have to put the airplane down on. And these guys all have different jobs that they do as soon as the airplane lands. And, and so they were separated by about 30 feet. They were not grouped together. They couldn't talk to each other, couldn't see each other. It was pitch black. Each of them did not know who that lieutenant was. There were 6,000 people on that ship. They did not know the lieutenant. They couldn't tell who it was anyway. He had his helmet on, his oxygen mask on. But all they saw was a shipmate go into that fire, and all five of them ran into the fire. Without any hesitation, they sprinted into the fire to save that young lieutenant. All five of those young enlisted men, young men were burned, but they saved the life of that young lieutenant by running into that fire. In fact, it was so powerful, the Secretary of the Navy heard about it, and he flew all the way from Washington to meet us when we pulled into Japan to get part of the ship repaired, and he pinned the Navy Marine Corps medal on those five young enlisted men. And I guarantee if we had invited them here today as guests of honor and brought them up here, we could ask them, why did you do it? And they'd say, simple, this was what I learned in my training. You take care of the ship first, and then your shipmate. And if there's anything left over, then you would think of yourself. Isn't it amazing that those five young men, anybody, would be willing to lay down their life for another human being. Simply amazing. I don't know about you, but it seems like every 9-11 anniversary, uh, I set aside some time where I just get alone and I think through what God showed me on that day. I thank God that he spared my life on that day, but also when I'm in that mode and I'm just kind of thankful and, and going through some scriptures about God's protection, that I think about people that have done the heroic acts like that, and like my son and, and his two friends that willingly gave up their lives over in eastern Afghanistan. I think of my friend Chuck Caputz, the Navy intelligence officer who rescued those four civilians on that day at the Pentagon. I think of those five young enlisted men on the flight deck of the USS Kitty Hawk who ran in that fire to save that young lieutenant. I think of people like Todd Beamer on the flight skies of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You know, he grabbed some other citizens together and said, let's roll. I think of people like my father, uh, a New York City cop or other police officers, first responders, firemen, the ones that were running up the, tray, you know, the stairs of the World Trade Center. Each one of them to willingly lay down their life so that somebody else could live. Isn't that amazing? 
And that, friends, you and I know that even though it's amazing, it's not without precedent. Because 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for each of us on the cross, did he not? The one who knew no sin, the scripture says, became sin on our behalf. Jesus paid a debt he didn't even owe. One that none of us could ever afford to pay. I love the way he's described by some of the gospel authors. Matthew says this. He says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Think about that for a second. If anybody could demand us to get down and wash his feet, isn't it Jesus, the Son of Man, the God in the flesh, the incarnate one? If anybody could demand that we serve him, I think Jesus would be a, a good candidate. But the scripture says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the Gospel writer John writes this, Jesus' words, and if you're a first responder, or you served in the military, or you are serving, this is our verse right here, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than one would willingly lay down their life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did for us on that cross. Let me ask you a pointed question, friend, do you know him? I don't mean you know about him, you've heard his name before, but do you really know him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you put your trust in him and him alone for your eternal life? You see, salvation is not on how much money you made or how many degrees or, or things you've accomplished here on earth. Salvation is based on one thing and one thing only. Jesus has done it all. There's nothing to be done. It's already been done. We can't be doneer. Can't do it anymore. But have you put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone? I'm asking this morning because we don't know how much time that we have. I mentioned that when we came down those stairs, the escalator, the power was knocked out that morning at the Pentagon, and we could hear in the distance floors three, two, and one. Will somebody help me? Will somebody show me the way? Will somebody save me? They were using those words. Here we are 20 years later and people are still yelling the same thing. In this country and across the globe, will somebody help me? Will somebody show me the way? Friend, does that describe you? We have no idea how much time we have. I would submit to you that morning of September 11, 2001, that morning, not a single man, not a single woman, not a single man standing in front of the mirror fixing his tie, not a single woman fixing finishing her makeup or doing her hair, looked in the mirror that morning, not a single man, not a single woman, looked in the mirror that morning and said, well, today's my last day on earth. And yet thousands perished instantly without any warning. And many of them separated from Christ for all of eternity. Do you know him beyond a shadow of a doubt? Have you put your faith and trust in him in Him alone for your salvation, for your eternal life. We don't know how much time we have. If you were to drive down the street by my high school, you'd come to the back of the scorer's box. On the back of the scorer's box, there's a permanent sign that says, Jay Cutner Memorial Field. Jay Cutner Memorial Field. Jay Cutner was a high school classmate of mine, starting quarterback in our football team, starting guard in our basketball team, starting pitcher in our baseball team, 6'3", about 200 pounds, 
a very good student being recruited across the country by Division I schools. They could have played anything he wanted, any sport. They just wanted him. We were in our last preseason scrimmage before we started our senior year of high school football. We knew we had a good team going into this season. We were playing in this scrimmage that we had a, a crosstown rival uh, school that we, were, we had lost a lot of uh, respect for, and we bumped heads with these guys all the time on and off the field. We did not like them, they did not like us, but it was a good team for us to scrimmage right before our season started. We were at the very end of the scrimmage. I remember Coach just pulled some of the starters out, and he put some of the second string guys in. So I asked the coach, I said, now that I'm out, can I, can I stand back here with the coaches and listen to the play calling? He said, yeah, stand back here with us. We're going to let some of the younger guys go in there and play. But Jay was still playing quarterback. We were doing this red zone offense and defense. We were down right about the five-yard five line trying to punch it into their end zone, and they were on defense trying to keep us out. Remember, kind of stuck my head in the huddle, listened to Jay, get ready to call a play, and the coach comes in, head coach, he says, I want you to call a, um, a pop pass to the tight end, the right-hand corner, and he steps out. And Jay goes to the guys, we ain't doing that. Quarterback sneak on me, I want to poke these other kids in the eye. Let's quarterback sneak them right now. So he goes up to the line. I'm thinking the coach is going to choke him. The coach is not going to be happy with this. So Jay gets up behind the center. He just looks at the other team. He pops the center really quick. The center hikes the ball, and Jay lowers his head, trying to get it across the end zone. Well, that middle linebacker on that other team who didn't like us and didn't like Jay, he figured it out really quickly, and he came like a freight train. On the three-yard line, they hit helmet to helmet. And he hit Jay so hard that he severed his spinal column. And our captain and quarterback would never move another muscle again for the rest of his life but his eyes. The only thing that would work was his eyes. We dedicated that season to our quarterback and friend and captain, Jay Cutner, and we won the championship that year. We drove the doctors and nurses crazy at his hospital. We had that place just plastered with trophies and, and banners and pom-poms, and the cheerleaders would come, and the players would come, and the coaches, and it was just Jay's eyes, every time we showed up, were just, yeah, gigantic. He was so excited that we were winning and winning and winning, game balls all over his room. By the end of November, the season was over, and the trophies had been given out, and most guys stopped going to CJ. It wasn't easy to look at. 6'3", 200, when he took that snap, he was well below 150 pounds by the end of the season and shrinking. But I continued to go and visit him. He was my friend. It was right about April time frame. I remember pushing the button for the elevator down in the lobby, and the door opened up, having come down from his floor, and there was his mom and dad and his nine siblings. All had visited him. His mom said, I'm so glad you're going up there because you'll be the only one up there. And I said, that's the last thing I want to do. Just have to be there alone. You had to carry the whole conversation with him. Again, he could only communicate with his eyes. But I got up there and I jumped on his bed, right, got right in front of him. He had all these screws in his head and his skull to keep his head elevated enough so the tracheotomy that he had would work. And normally his eyes were really excited when he, he got to see somebody from home like me or somebody from school like me. But I could tell he was really distant and really sad looking in his eyes right now. See, I think what had happened was an overzealous doctor or nurse had told his family as they were leaving, it won't be long now. It won't be long. 
And I jumped right in front of him, and I started off with all the high school scoop. This is who's going to the prom with who. This is who's got a scholarship. This is how the baseball team's doing. The track guys are doing this. And he wasn't buying it. I could tell. He wasn't buying it. I didn't know then, but I know now as he was really asking me, Joyce, I know I'm about, I'm about to die. What happens when you die? What do I need to know when you die? Somebody tell me, and friends, I, I, I admit to you publicly that I, I did nothing because I didn't know. Nobody ever told me, parents, nobody ever shared that, religious leaders, nobody ever showed or shared that with me. I had no idea. So unless somebody who knows the truth of the gospel and knows Jesus and could explain the truth of the gospel like I just explained to you, my friend died shortly after that, and I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Fast forward with me four years later, I'm now a senior at the Naval Academy down in Annapolis. Thankfully, my freshman year, two believers, two classmates of mine, had befriended me, and then, then they shared the gospel with me. They asked that light bulb question, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? And I had no idea. I just watched a friend go into eternity. I had no idea still, and they opened the scriptures and explained it to me, but I wasn't ready. Three years later, God brought me through a number of circumstances, but my senior year, I was ripe. I was ready. And it was on the 18th of October, 1978, in room 7233. At 10 o'clock at night, I knelt down next to my bed and gave my life to Christ. And God gave me a gift. I mean, it's not a charismatic thing with a vision, but God gave me a gift that he, he just overwhelmed me with the truth of the gospel. At 10 o'clock, I gave my life to Christ, and shortly after that, maybe a couple of minutes later, God brought back a memory of my friend Jay Kuttner's eyes. And I realized that I never want to make a... And I, I never want to lose an opportunity to look somebody in the eye again without being willing to share the good news of the gospel. And so that's why I came today. I made a commitment to God. I didn't want to overlook having an opportunity to share with you. I'll close with this. On the night of September 11, 2001, when I came from sharing the bad news about the loss of that family member to the family, I was physically and emotionally exhausted. I'd been up at 4.30 that morning to be at the Pentagon by 5.30, and we've been through all that stuff of that day and on that uh, September 11th day. I could see the light was still on up in our bedroom. My wife was waiting for me. And I came in the front door and I locked everything and I started walking upstairs and I hear, hey, Dad, the boy's coming from the living room. Hey, Dad, is that you? And there's my oldest son sitting in the dark just waiting for me to come home. He was a junior in high school. My son, Ryan, I came in and turned the light on. I said, what are you doing up? He said, I'm just waiting for you. He came over and just threw his arms around me. Dad, I'm so thankful God spared your life today at the Pentagon, Dad. I don't know what I'd do without you. Dad, I'm just so thankful God spared your life. Just good father-son moment, just holding on. But then he drops his arms and he steps back a little bit and he's kind of looking me over and he says, Dad, i got to ask you a question. And I said, well, go ahead, what do you got? And he steps into me, man to man, looks at me in the eye and said, for some reason, God spared your life today at the Pentagon, Dad. He says, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? He repeated it. He said, what will you do with the rest of your life? Holy Spirit just spoke to me through the life of my son. And he went upstairs and left me standing there. How fair is that? <laughs> Finally got my legs going and went upstairs. And 
quickly changed, got in bed, prayed with my wife. Desha was such a sweet woman. She waited for me, and I said amen, and I think she drifted off quickly to sleep, and I stayed up all night. Yes, I found out that Osama bin Laden had planned for seven years to try to come and kill me. I learned that nine of my high school classmates, all firemen, lost their lives in the World Trade Center. I knew President Bush would have to make some key decisions that would involve a lot of my colleagues in the military. We prayed for them, but really what kept me up all night was the question from my son. Dad, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I wish he could have come up here with me because at this point, I would sit down and, and have my son come up here because I think the question is still valid, is it not? Think about it. For some reason, on September 11, 2001, those hijackers weren't on your plane if you were flying. They didn't come to your place of work if you were working. And God spared your life like he spared my life as well. But doesn't God do that every single day? I mean, Harry, this morning you said, God, thank you for allowing me to wake up. My heart still works. Sir, you, you were able to breathe this morning. And God says to every one of us, you can have today. He literally spares our lives, so the question's still valid. For some reason, God had spared you for such a time as this. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? May God quicken our pace. We don't know how much time we have. May God bless you. May God bless this country. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. You're a wonderful congregation. God bless you.